Well, great, guys. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm going to begin us. Be, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Uh, if you guys don't have a confession um, or a handout, we've got two left of each. Um, so if you don't have one, do you need one, Courtney? No? Okay. Um, but just raise your hand, let me know, and we'll get somebody to pass them out to you. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the breath in our lungs that you've given us. Father, uh, help us as we come this morning to corporate worship that you would prepare our hearts and minds to be renewed by your word. This morning as we study your law, I pray that you would give us wisdom and patience and mercy uh, as we work through this topic. And uh, Lord, overall, we pray that you would just be glorified in what we do here um, every week. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, so we are on chapter 19 of the law of God. This one is exciting, okay? I know all of you were thinking that when you looked down at it. You're like, this is one is going to be the most exciting one. And you're right. It is the most exciting one. I'm really excited about this one. So you're going to see that we have seven paragraphs here. And so I'm going to need readers. I'm going to need people who are going to help me read through the paragraphs. And this is how we're going to break it up. We're going to break it up into the first two paragraphs. Okay, and then we're going to break it up into three, four, and five, and then we're going to end with six and seven. So we're not going to read them all at one time, but we're going to read through the first two right now. Um, so let me get two readers. Anybody? Justin, you can be paragraph one. You got paragraph two. Okay, we've got our paragraphs. Go ahead and read them, gentlemen. Out loud with a nice booming voice. And the other six are duty to man. All right, thank you. Also, thank you for the mic. That's a, that's a nice addition. If we can have people just all over the room uh, read, so Joshua has to run back and forth, that would be wonderful uh, this morning. Hey, so when we get into the law of God, um, this, this, this chapter that we're going to be reading is going to be really important because it's going to have implications about how we understand uh, the confession, how we or how the um, editors of the Second London Baptist Confession, how they understood the Bible. And so we can, can talk of things, uh, kind of these big categories of antinomian, which means anti-law. So there's kind of a group of people who would feel like that's the way. There'd be a group of people that would feel like legalism or focusing on the law uh, would be the way. And what the, the confession does here really well for us is that it explains uh, the proper way of understanding it so we don't fall into either of those two camps. 
Now, it begins in paragraph one and two, really about kind of summarizing what the confession has already talked about um, in, uh, in the law of God. So we've seen the law of God come up in chapter one. We've seen the law of God come up in chapter four, chapter seven, other places. Uh, we've seen this already talked about, but they're really going to focus in on it here. And so what we see right away in paragraph one is that God gave Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. Now, somebody read for me. This should be easy. You should know how to get there. Genesis 1.27. Someone really far away from Joshua. No, I'm kidding. Anybody? Wesley will. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Thanks, Wesley. So we see from the beginning, and, and but before I do that, why do you think the editors of this confession use that verse to be a, um, a verse to help us understand the fact that God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart? Why do you think? Anybody have any idea? He created them in his image. That's right. Good. So this is going to help us understand the law by the fact that God decided to create man and woman in his image, and this image of God has something to do with this universal law of obedience because in creating them, he had it written in their heart. Okay, this is going to be important as we continue to move along. But then we're going to see, and a particular precept, okay, and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, and then it goes on to say it's bound his posterity, uh, promised life upon fulfilling it, threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the ability to actually keep it. What is that? We've, we've gone over this already. What is this thing? It's your first blank that the confession is describing in the second part of paragraph one. Anybody? You get a high five from me, I don't have my bag, or I would tempt you with bookmarks certain things. It's the covenant of works. Thank you, Dennis. So yes, we see that right away in paragraph one, in the law of God, it is talking about the covenant of works. Now we'll see a difference here between the Baptist confession and uh, grandpapa and mommy and poppy, which I would say would be the Westminster's grandpapa, and then uh, papa and, and mama would be the Savoy, where they actually explicitly write in this paragraph the covenant of works. Now, some would say that means that the Baptist confession doesn't believe in the covenant of works, and we would all heartily say that's false uh, because we've talked about it already, and it actually talks about it within this chapter. But for some reason, they decided to take it out, and guess what? I don't know why, and neither do a bunch of scholars, but that's okay. So we'll just move forward with it. We see that God gave Adam two things. He gave him a law of universal obedience written on his heart. We're going to talk about that. And a particular precept, which is going to be the covenant of works. And as it continues into paragraph two, we're going to see the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. 
and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables. The first four containing our duty towards God, the other six our duty toward man. So what are we seeing at this point? We are seeing the confession opening up what this universal law that was written on the hearts or on the heart of Adam and on all men, this one that was a a perfect rule of righteousness. And what is that? What is that law that is written on the hearts? What is the universal law? It's in your notes. You can cheat. What is that universal law that's written on all of our hearts? Anybody? Hand? The what? The Ten Commandments. Wonderfully done, Justin. Okay? We call that the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Now, I just want to make note really quick that this law existed in the heart of man before it was written down on the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. This perfect rule of righteousness existed before Moses went up to the mountain and actually heard from God. And why am I harping on this? Is because this law is eternally existent, okay? It was in creating man in the image of God was the imprint of God on his heart, this moral righteousness, because God is perfect, And so, of course, he's going to have the perfect rule of righteousness, and he's going to give that to us. So we see same law, previously existent, was delivered at Mount Sinai. Okay, these are the Ten Commandments. Let's read Romans 2, 14 and 15. Do I have a reader? Romans 2, 14 and 15. Richie, okay. Joshua is currently sprinting. No, he's speed walking, which is an Olympic sport. For when, the gen- for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Thank you, Richie. Yeah, we're seeing that the law of God, right? This is Paul picking up on this idea and reinforcing the fact that the law of God has been written on the heart of all men. And it continues, Paul picks up on the fact, that it continues to be the perfect rule of righteousness. There is no other rule of righteousness needed. No, it's this perfect moral law okay now we're going to get into paragraphs three four and five and i know i'm flying over this but the reality is you could spend months and months and months in this chapter but we're trying to give a good overview so let me get three more readers come on you guys got the the handout all right larry you can go ahead and take uh chapter three anybody else okay dennis you can be Well, I'll do this for Joshua. Courtney, you can do uh, paragraph four. Dennis, you'll take paragraph five. Great. Besides the law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, uh, partly of worship, 
prefiguring Christ, his grace, actions, suffering, and benefits, and partly holding forth driver's instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abbreviated and taken away. So as Joshua is running, I'm just going to make a quick note on that. When you read Reformation, they're not talking about the historical event, the Reformation. They're actually talking about uh, terminology that's in the book of Hebrews that talks about Christ being the time of Reformation. So just a point of clarity. Okay. Paragraph four. To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of modern use. General equity only being of moral use. Sorry, just a quick clarification on that, moral use. Paragraph five, the moral law does forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of that matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator, who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Okay, cool. This is, um, this is a delicious piece of theology here, folks. This is one that uh, should make you kind of salivate in your mouth what we're about to, to get after. Are you feeling that way or is it just me? Um, what was that? I heard somebody. Somebody was giving me a yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so what is this called? Do you guys know what the confession is describing at this point? This is a blank for you, and, I, and I've given you part of the answer already. What is this called? Stephen, I see you. I see, what was it? Threefold division. All right. Well done, Stephen. Yeah, this is called, and what um, Reformed theologians have held to historically, what confessionalism has held to historically, what John Calvin held to historically, what people even say, even someone like Justin Martyr held to historically, he's a church father, um, is called the threefold or trifold division of the law. Okay, so we don't do this just to be silly. We do this to help us understand God's law. So let's, let me just throw it out to you. Do you guys know the three different divisions? Does anyone want to take a stab? Maybe just one of them. Didn't raise your hand, but I'll take it, Ted. Moral law. Yes, that's one. Mom? Judicial or civil, very good. Yep, that's one too. One more. Dietary. Dietary, okay, good. You use that word and I'll put it in the category of ceremonial. But yes, dietary laws do definitely fall under the ceremonial part of the law. Well done, people. So the question that now we have to ask, is this threefold division, trifold division of the law, is this even a biblical division? There would be some people who would contest, no, we don't see it in the Bible. It's not a good division of the law. And we've, we've gone over things like this in this class about things like the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, but we hold to that as, as doctrine, right? And so I want to say that this, this division is thoroughly biblical. 
And I'm going to caveat that, which is always the best, right? Yes, but uh, I want to say and not act like there isn't um, always a clear division, right? Sometimes these guys are overlapping each other, right? The uh, ceremonial and the civil are kind of the, uh, the commentary on the moral, but there are times in which all of them are touching each other. All of them are overlapping. So I'm, I'm not saying it's always clear. It doesn't just go Exodus 20, and then the next header says, and these are the civil or judicial judgments, and then the next header says, here are the ceremonial laws. It doesn't do that, but we see these different laws um, generally falling into these three categories that are helpful for us to understand. Now there's a point, okay? We get to the moral law. So we've talked about the moral law being the Ten Commandments written on the hearts of all men. I want to show you that there is a distinction that is made in the Bible for the Ten Commandments. There is something to be said about how the Bible presents the Ten Commandments for us. So let's read a couple of verses and by couple, I think I'm meaning 22 uh, verses. So let me get somebody to read um, Deuteronomy 5. So yes, we're going to go over the Ten Commandments together. Uh, Deuteronomy 5. Let's see how we want to break this up. Uh, let's go 1 through 10. No, 1 through 11. And then somebody take for us 12 through 22. Okay. So Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 11, and then 12 through 22. 1 through 11, anyone 12 through 22? Thank you. All right. Edgar, he, he, beat, he beat, beat Ronnie to the punch. So sorry, Ronnie. Next time, buddy. Next time. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the, stat uh, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do, to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst, midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and, and you at this time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for, for you were afraid because of the fire, and, did not go, and you did not go up into the mountain, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or, is, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a, je am, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to, those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You shall not take the name of the Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as Yahweh your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work. 
you or your son or your daughter or your male slave or your s female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates so that your male slave and your female slave may rest as well as you. You shall remember that, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and Yahweh your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore Yahweh your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as Yahweh your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male slave, or his female slave, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud and of the dense gloom, with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Okay, so we read those verses. Thank you guys for, for reading those. Well done. Um, as you read in Deuteronomy, just there at the very end, Edgar was reading to us that he spoke no more and that he gave those two tablets to me, that this is what God had written, these ten commandments. So we see that the moral law is given a specific place of prominence. The moral law was actually written by God and given to Moses. And you'll hear this being said as the finger of God actually wrote this on the two tablets and then gave them to Moses to bring to the people. Okay. Now the rest of the law that we see that we will go over, the judgments um, or the statutes or other commandments were God's words written down by Moses. Okay, so we're seeing a distinction about how these 10 were given as opposed to the rest. Okay, the 10 commandments were given on Mount Sinai with loud thunder, flashes of lightning, a thick cloud, and a loud trumpet blast as we see in Exodus. Okay, the 10 commandments were put in the Ark of the Covenant. Upon giving the 10 commandments, the Lord added no more. After the Ten Commandments, further statues and rules were given by Moses to the people. So I'm just wanting you to see, as we are going through this, that there seems to be a clear distinction. There seems to be a clear distinction between the moral and between what the other two divisions of the law are. Now, I give you biblical reference here for the judicial and for the ceremonial. These are not the only places, okay? Caveat, it's not just Exodus 21 through 23, and for the ceremonial laws, it's not just Exodus 25 through Leviticus 7, Leviticus 11 and 18. It's not just there, but we're seeing them specifically there. Specifically with the judicial, we're seeing that as case law explaining the moral law, okay? And we're, we're going to continue into those two um, divisions here in a second because that's what the confession does. But we're seeing a, a contrast between these two things, the place of prominence given to the Ten Commandments. Okay, but it's still all God's word, right? Yes and amen. Okay, so let's go then to ceremonial. Okay, when we read that in chapter or paragraph, I always do that. When we read that in paragraph three, um, 
we see, I, I, I ask these two questions to help us clarify. What is it, okay? The confession says that it's partly of worship. That is your blank. Dorothy had talked to us about kind of the eating habits of that, and that's certainly a part of their worship, okay? So partly of worship. And what I think is really cool is that the confession helps us see it was a means of how God had ordained his people to worship through sacrifices and priests, and these pointed to Christ. These things were always pointing to Christ. And we, we know that Christ being our perfect, spotless lamb, who was given as the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Okay, and then secondly, the confession says that it's partly of instruction of moral duties. So there's again, just, they're not perfectly distinguished. We have categories, but there's going to be some overlap. So they instructed the Israelites and how to apply the moral law in religious and social contexts. Now pay special attention to your footnotes. I've thrown lots of more information in there for you guys if you're interested. Um, And I would love for you guys to read a lot of these resources that I'm throwing out there for you guys. Okay, so the second question that we're going to have to ask is, okay, is it binding? Am I allowed to eat pork or am I not allowed to eat pork? Right? Can I eat shellfish? Can I not eat shellfish? Can I do all of these things um, that we are seeing pointed out in the ceremonial law? Do I have to make sacrifices? Do I have to do those things? No. They have been, as the confession says, abrogated. And that quite literally means what they say right after that. Or taken away because of Christ. Now, let's read this. Hebrews 10. Ooh, so good. Okay, so I need a re- reader for Hebrews 10. Um, 1 through 14, and then I'm going to pick up Colossians 2, 13 through 17. Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. Come on, it's Hebrews. All right, Ronnie, well done, buddy. Thanks. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I will come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Was it through 14? But when Christ had offered 
for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for... Oh, sorry. Now I'm going too far. <laughs> well done. Well done. Thank you, Ronnie. Um, yeah, so we're seeing that the book of Hebrews, right, is really helping us understand that Christ is what these shadowy things, this, the, he is the fulfillment of those shadowy things that we see in the Old Testament. We see the Old Covenant pointing to Christ. Christ is the epicenter of all redemptive history. He is the point. So these things are pointing to him. Colossians 2, 13 through 17, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, what I really think is interesting is this idea of regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath is clearly talking about the Old Testament law that is given in all of those things. And so we see that Christ has abrogated those different ways in the laws of, of thinking, okay? Now let's go. Uh, there's, there's more to be said there, but uh, for sake of time, goodness, it's, we've, we've got to hustle. Um, so judicial, what is it? What is the judicial law then? They are, so we see sundry judicial laws given. Sundry just meaning they are numerous laws regarding the enforcement of the second table of the Ten Commandments given to the people of Israel, or, or just all ten. You could say both. Now, I've got a couple of quotes here. I wanted to bring in um, a heavy hitter for us to help us understand the judicial law, and John Calvin is going to be my commentator here. He says, the judicial law, which bestowed on them a form of government, taught them definite rules of justice and equity, that they might live together peacefully without inflicting harm on one another. Continuing in a different place, he says, for our Lord did not deliver it by Moses, hand it to hand to have it published and to have it published in every nation and enforced through all the earth but having taken the jewish people under his special care protection guidance and rule he sought to be their special lawgiver and as befitted a good and wise lawgiver in all his laws he gave particular thought to what would be useful to this people so then the question we need to ask is is it binding is the judicial law binding for us now? The confession is clear. No, it expired with the state of the people and does not oblige anyone. We have Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. Whew. I'm going to read that at a hurried pace. Uh, and you guys are going to go back and read that later. Um, so that you can have all the good stuff, okay? Now, the point in what we are saying is this. 
We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises." Okay, I'm going to let you guys read the rest of that when you get home to be good Bereans, uh, to make sure that I'm not spouting off nonsense here. Okay, so let me move to the next point on under, is it binding? And, and so we've said no, this was for a particular people. Okay, this was for a particular people. That's a blank for you on C. This is being a law for a particular people at a particular time. And so we see that the expiration coincides with Babylonian deportation of the people of Israel. Just reading through this with my kids in 2 Kings, as well as the Roman destruction of the temple. But to be fair, when we read this, we see that the confession does say that there is something called general equity. And that's your blank. General equity under number two. Okay, and so uh, Sam Waldron here provides a, a helpful context, and he says, though the judicial law, though the judicial law has expired, yet as an inspired application of the moral law to the civil circumstances of Israel, it reveals many timeless principles of general equity, of general goodness, of, of things that we can take away. Justice, goodness, and righteousness. As such, it remains relevant not only to modern states, but also to modern churches and Christians. So we see that, yes, it is God's word. God's word um, is, is useful in all life and godliness, but we see for that particular people at that particular time that it's no longer obligatory for everyone to follow under the judicial law. Okay, moving on to moral Okay, we've already talked about moral just a little bit. It is the Ten Commandments. Is it binding? Yes, it forever binds all, doth bind all. Uh, kind of sounded a little German, but that's what I meant from the confession. The law which existed before the Mosaic law, right? Before it was written down by the very finger of God and continues after. Now, why would I say that it continues after? Well, Christ himself states that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then we continue to see not an iota uh, will, will, will disappear. That's an Andrew translation, but go to Matthew 5. Uh, it clearly talks about this. But what I want to mention here is that when Jesus is talking about the law, he then goes on to explain what? What does he go on to explain after that? The Ten Commandments, the moral law. He goes on to say this. This is the thing that is binding you. This is the thing that is in your hearts. This is the thing that I've come to explain that it will not fade away. Okay, and then we see this clearly being picked up 
by the Apostle Paul, which we already read, and Romans 2, 14 and 15, that the law is actually binding for both believers and unbelievers. Friends, it's important for us to understand the law in order that we can understand grace in order that we can understand grace. And so we see in paragraphs six and seven, true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works and praise be to God for that. Because as we saw in Adam, he failed and we failed in Adam because he was acting as our federal head. But we see in Romans 6, 12 through 14, let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Praise God. I've got other verses for you that I need you to go back and read um, in there as well as we are coming up of being out of time. But let me just run through um, the uses of the law, okay? So paragraphs six and seven, we're not even reading it because we're just out of time. But I'm gonna have you guys go back and read paragraphs six and seven. And what they're doing in paragraphs six and seven is they're talking about the fact that true believers are not under the covenant of works, meaning it's not a works-based righteousness because of the work that Christ has done, being the better Adam, fulfilling the law on our behalf, that we, if we believe in him, put our faith in him, shall be forgiven and justified, okay? But this law is still useful, the moral law, is still useful for both unbelievers and believers. So quickly, for unbelievers, it restrains them from much sin, okay? This is kind of this idea of common grace of, of how much sin could be poured out if men were as depraved as they could be. It is a grace of God that he restrains that from them, and we see that in the law. Two, to convince them of their sin and misery. If you've ever he heard our dear brother Ralph Hole teach on, uh, evangelist, uh, on evangelism, he, he sits here and he, he really helps people uh, consider their sin and misery. Three, to discover their absolute need of Christ and drive them to him as their all-sufficient Savior. Four, to render them inexcusable if they continue in their sins and finally reject the only Savior of lost sinners. Now, is it applicable to believers? Of course it is. It renders Christ more precious to them and creates a gratitude toward him who so loved them as to obey its precepts and suffer its penalty that he might deliver them from it as a covenant. Praise God for Christ as we look at the law and as it makes us just cherish him to show them the will of God and regulate their conduct. We see that. We see that these 10 commandments will, will show us the will of God in our life to serve as a standard of self-examination and in order to discover the pollutions of their hearts and lives, to lead them to constant dependence upon Christ and to execute them a progressive advancement in holiness. That's a fun way of just saying you will be sanctified. The law helps you in order that you would follow Christ. It's not by the law, but it's because of Christ's work that the law now becomes precious. 
to serve with a test of their sincerity that they may assure their hearts that they are of the truth and that they delight in the law of God after the inward man, even though they certainly don't do it perfectly. And then finally, friends, we see that the law is not contrary to the grace of the gospel. In fact, it sweetly complies with it. The Spirit enables us to follow it freely and cheerfully. So let me just be obnoxiously clear. The law does not justify you. Christ does. Once you are justified in Christ, you are given a new heart. This new heart then sees the law as something beautiful and as something you want to follow in order to be obedient to your Lord and Savior. It becomes sweet. All right. And we are done, which some of you are saying, sweet. Um, So let me pray for you, and then you are dismissed. Heavenly Father, help us as we have been bought by the blood of Christ, as the blood of goats and bulls will not do, but it is the blood of Christ that was the ultimate sacrifice. Father, if we are in Christ, may we sweetly cherish this moral law that you have given us from before Mount Sinai that was written on all of our, law, on all of our hearts. And as you are an unchanging God, a God who is perfect in everything, and as we see and being created in your image a righteousness that you have implanted in our heart, may that righteousness become sweet to us as we follow you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our body. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.